Welcome to Bite Size Battles. It was a warm dawn that broke over the tiny tropical paradise of Midway Atoll on the 4th of June 1942. It was a place holiday dreams are made of white sandy beaches, sweeping crescent curved coves, crystal clear water. The striking blue of the sea was set against the tropical green forest which ringed the shore. It looked set to be another beautiful day. But the idyll was about to be shattered. Over the gentle sound of the ocean came the low hum of bombers. Midway wasn't just a tropical nirvana, it was an American air and army base. And now it was a target. 108 warplanes had been launched from four powerful aircraft carriers of the Imperial Japanese Navy. Their low hum grew louder as they drew closer, and American troopers rushed to man anti-aircraft batteries, hearts pounding. As the Japanese bombers began their runs, the AA batteries opened up an intense barrage. American fighters were called back from escorting a squadron of bombers en route to attack the Japanese carriers and threw themselves into the fight. Together, they downed 11 Japanese aircraft and damaged several more. But many more American planes were destroyed and Midway was burning and badly damaged. Inbound was a Japanese invasion force which was intent on taking the islands. But that was just the first part of Admiral Yamamoto's plan. The aim was to lure the American carrier fleet to defend Midway and then destroy it totally. Once achieved and Midway taken, perhaps even Hawaii would be next, creating an island wall over which the United States would have to bloodily clamber if it ever wanted to crush the Japanese Empire for good. The only problem for Yamamoto was that the American carriers weren't lured to Midway. They were already waiting for him. The outcome of this battle would either see an American defeat even more devastating than Pearl Harbor, or see a turn in the tide from which the Japanese would never recover. Welcome to this, the seventh and final episode of history's greatest naval battles. The Battle of Midway. The day didn't start well for the Americans. Their bombers based on Midway, which had had their fighter escorts stripped from them, now attacked the Japanese carriers unprotected. 41 Douglas Devastator torpedo bombers aimed to deliver the first blow to the fleet, but they were slow, obsolete aircraft, armed with torpedoes that didn't even work most of the time. Those men went into the fight knowing that most of them would not come home. And they were sadly right. Massed and fierce ship-based anti-aircraft fire and the quick and nimble Japanese Zero fighters decimated the slow and unwieldy Douglas Devastators. Within minutes, 35 of the 41-strong squadron were down, and no damage at all had been done to the Japanese. During the firefight, one of the bombers was seriously damaged, 
and headed straight for the bridge of the carrier Akagi. Whether he was out of control, already dead, or on a suicide run, we'll never know. But the carrier fleet's commander, Vice Admiral Nagumo, must have watched aghast as this runaway American dived directly towards him in flames. Only at the last minute did a slight change of direction take him past the bridge, just feet away, before slamming into the ocean. Another of the American pilots, Ensign George Gay, crashed into the Pacific after a tussle with five Japanese fighters. He was adrift for 30 hours before being rescued, and of his 30-man squadron, he was the sole survivor. The American counterattack from Midway had been ruthlessly swatted away, but the runway of Midway's airfield was still in action, so Nagumo ordered a second strike. And this is where it all started to go wrong for the Japanese. Nagumo was under strict orders from Yamamoto to always keep half of his strike force prepared for anti-ship operations, just in case the Americans showed up earlier than expected. But in the belief that Yamamoto was being overly cautious, and perhaps stunned by his near-death experience, Nagumo ordered that his reserve aircraft be armed for a second strike on Midway, while they waited for the first strike wave to return. It was a fatal error. The rearming had been underway for half an hour when a scout plane informed Nagumo of the presence of the American carrier fleet just east of Midway. Probably uttering a few choice Japanese swear words, he quickly changed his mind and now ordered the planes be rearmed with their original anti-ship torpedoes and bombs. It resulted in chaos on the flight decks as sailors desperately switched out different types of ordnance. In their haste, they left a lot of those high explosives out, unsecured on the flight decks and hangars. The activity was feverish, but now Nagumo's first wave of bombers that had struck Midway were returning imminently. Running low on fuel, they needed to land soon or risk ditching in the sea. Nagumo was in a real sticky situation of his own making. The presence of unexpected American carriers nearby posed a mortal risk to the survival of his own fleet, and the opportunity to lay an ambush for the Americans had now been Uno reversed on him. He could have launched his reserve aircraft and taken the risk of losing the returning Midway bombers for lack of fuel but that would have meant sending his reserve against the newly discovered American fleet without it all being properly rearmed. Instead, Nagumo opted to wait for the returning Midway bombers to land and then send out his reserves to hunt down and destroy the American carriers. Had he known what was coming, he might have changed his mind because the three US carriers had already launched a massive strike force at the Japanese fleet. Commanded by the daring admirals Fletcher and Spruance, the USS Yorktown, Enterprise and Hornet had unleashed hundreds of torpedo bombers, dive bombers and fighter escorts. But it wasn't quite the force to darken the sky. 
It took the Hornet and Enterprise so long to launch their aircraft that the first waves of this American attack were uncoordinated and at the extreme range of the aircraft's abilities. But Spruance knew that whichever carrier struck first would have the advantage. So rather than form up all the aircraft into a single offensive wing, which was just taking forever, he had each small squadron head off alone as soon as they were in the skies. With poor directions and individual errors, several squadrons got lost or had to turn back, and more were forced to ditch. The first to actually reach the Japanese were another group of Douglas Devastator torpedo bombers. All alone, all 15 of them were shot down without causing any damage. Infuriatingly for the Devastator pilots, many of them had been able to get within spitting distance of their targets, but their torpedoes remained shockingly unreliable. Shot after shot failed either by running too deep and coursing right underneath the carrier's keels, prematurely exploding, or failing to explode at all on impact. In fact, the Japanese got used to hearing the loud clang American dud torpedoes made on their hulls. Their performance was a scandal, given the sacrifice of the American pilots. It was clear too, that unescorted, lone squadrons of American bombers were hopelessly vulnerable to Japanese zeros and furious anti-aircraft fire. The lack of coordination in the American attack effectively handed those torpedo bombers to the Japanese. But then, American luck changed. Three squadrons of dauntless dive bombers and another of devastators managed to find the Japanese carriers at the same time, and attacked simultaneously. The Zeros were distracted by the torpedo bombers, and anyway couldn't even see the dive bombers, obscured as they were at high altitude in thick, fluffy, cumulonimbus clouds. As usual, the torpedo bombers were mauled by the Zeros, even though this time they were miraculously escorted by Wildcat fighters. Even so, the Wildcats themselves got a beating from the Zeros, and of 22 aircraft, just two returned. But now, the Douglas dive bombers came screaming out of the clouds from 20,000 feet, aiming directly for three of the four Japanese carriers. In a death-defying vertical descent at 275 miles an hour, the huge carriers began as insects, but quickly loomed large. Tracer fire from the anti-aircraft guns of the carriers, cruisers and destroyers filled the air, raking several of the bombers. But still they came on. It simply couldn't have been worse timing for Nagumo. All four of his carrier decks and hangars were strewn with the now-returned original Midway Strike Force, the rearming reserve, snaking fuel lines, and the unsecured ordnance that sailors had left stacked up in their rush to turn planes around. Those carriers were floating powder kegs. 
the Japanese anti-aircraft gunners shrieked defiance as they blazed away at what they called the Helldivers with everything they had. Mitsuo Fukida, the pilot who had led the attacks on Pearl Harbor six months earlier, was on board the Akagi and described what he saw. A lookout screamed, Helldivers! I looked up to see three black enemy planes plummeting towards our ship. Our machine guns fired frantic bursts at them, but it was too late. The plump silhouettes of the American dauntless dive bombers quickly grew larger, and then a number of black objects suddenly floated eerily from their wings. As the dauntlesses pulled out of their dives, bombs fell silently. The crew of the Akagi watched them breathlessly in what seemed an age. But just a few seconds later, one of those bombs hit home. It went right through an elevator and penetrated to the upper deck hangar, where it exploded amidst aircraft armed and fully fuelled. The whole carrier shuddered as aviation fuel and ordnance burst into flames in a colossal eruption, sending flame and steel fragments everywhere. At the same time, a second carrier, the Soryu, also came under attack, three bombs detonating amongst the stacked ammunition, creating an instant inferno. And just minutes earlier, the carrier Kaga had been assaulted by two whole squadrons of dive bombers, hurtling down from the skies, bellowing death. Clarence Dickinson said, We were coming down in all directions on the port side of the carrier. I recognised her as the Kaga. She was enormous and the target was utterly satisfying. I saw a bomb hit just where I was aiming. I saw the deck rippling and curling back in all directions, exposing a great section of the hangar below. I saw my 500-pound bomb hit right abreast of the carrier's island. The 200-pound bombs struck in the forward area of the parked planes. Kaga was hit at least four times and was devastated. In just a few minutes, three of Nagumo's four carriers were ablaze from end to end, including his own flagship, the Akagi. Nagumo descended into a shocked trance, muttering, it's not time yet, as he stared out languidly at the smoke and fire of his once mighty aircraft carriers. He was eventually persuaded to abandon ship with an almost imperceptible nod. The only Japanese carrier left was the Hiryu, and it carried the audacious Rear Admiral Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi had earlier advised Nagumo to launch his reserve at the American carriers before the Midway bombers returned. Nagumo should have listened. But Yamaguchi now acted. He ordered an immediate counter-attack with every bomber Hiryu had. The first wave attacked the USS Yorktown, a tiny speck snaking a white streak through the blue ocean below. Coming in a vengeful cloud of dive bombers, 
the first wave struck Yorktown with three bombs through a haze of anti-aircraft fire. She was heavily damaged, but her crew managed to patch her up enough to continue operating. They did such a good job that when the second wave of Yamaguchi's bombers turned up, they were convinced it must be a different carrier. A fierce dogfight ensued over Yorktown, Zeros duelling with wildcats as Japanese torpedo bombers made their runs. Several got through, and the Japanese torpedoes showed all the reliability the Americans lacked. Two struck the Yorktown in ruinous explosions, tearing holes in her beneath the waterline. Yorktown began to list dangerously, and the crew abandoned ship. While she stayed afloat, she was no longer any use to spruance, and now Yamaguchi's confidence soared. Returning Japanese pilots told him that two separate American carriers had been put out of action, maybe even sunk. He thought there was just one left. So he ordered a third attack and began moving his whole task force towards the Americans. His group included two battleships, and together with Hiryu's warplanes, still posed a formidable threat to the Americans. Perhaps a Japanese victory could be snatched from the jaws of defeat. But while the Hiryu's pilots were resting and their aircraft rearming, a sudden shout of alarm sent pulses racing. Yamaguchi's nostrils flared, jaw hardened, his eyes fixed as he heard the words, Enemy dive bombers are right above us. Enterprise and Hornet had sent in more dauntless bombers, more than Yamaguchi had assumed they were even able to. Wildcats took on the fighter screen of 12 zeros as the dauntlesses came swooping from the skies. The Japanese fleet's anti-aircraft fire was furious, unrelenting, withering, massed, desperate. But they couldn't stop the swarm, and four bombs struck the carrier's flight deck, which curled back grotesquely, sparking fires throughout the ship. Her crew spent hours in a futile attempt at quelling the flames, but eventually Yamaguchi ordered the ship to be scuttled. The crew were taken off, but Yamaguchi himself and the Hiryu's captain, Tomeo Kaku, chose to go down with the ship. A Japanese destroyer then followed Yamaguchi's last order and torpedoed the stricken burning carrier, causing it finally to sink with Yamaguchi on board. Japan had lost one of its most gifted naval air warfare commanders along with four of her six best aircraft carriers. It was little consolation that a Japanese submarine torpedoed the ailing Yorktown, sinking her too. Yamamoto, with his fleet of powerful surface ships, initially powered forward to try to take the Americans unaware, and perhaps even now he could destroy the American carriers with the huge 18-inch guns of the enormously powerful battleship Yamato. But nightfall was coming, 
and Spruance knew just how good the Japanese were at naval night fighting. He didn't know Yamamoto was on his way, but correctly guessed his intentions, and so withdrew his fleet just east of Midway. Finding Spruance gone, Yamamoto then also took the decision to leave the area, not wanting his prize surface fleet lost on top of the carriers. Midway was a colossal achievement for the United States. They'd had fewer carriers and aircraft than the Japanese. Their pilots were far less experienced. The Wildcat fighters were no match for Zeros, the Devastator bombers basically sitting ducks, and the American torpedoes were next to useless. But there were a few things that did work well for the Americans. Their code breakers had given them the opportunity to turn the tables on the Japanese ambush plan. And Spruance's decision to launch his squadrons quickly but piecemeal was, while disastrous for some squadrons, what ultimately won the battle. The Japanese could have evened the odds had Nagumo not disobeyed Yamamoto's orders to always leave half his aircraft armed and ready for unexpected American fleet action. Had he listened, he wouldn't have wasted time rearming and then rearming again, and he could have launched his reserve at the American carriers before the Midway bombers returned. They would have passed the American squadrons in flight as they'd already been launched, but they would have had a seriously good opportunity at sinking all three American carriers. In turn, Without all those fully fueled aircraft and unsecured ordnance all over the Japanese decks and hangars, it's possible that some of the carriers would have survived the American attacks. Indeed, had Nagumo's strike force succeeded in knocking out Yorktown, Enterprise and Hornet, it's certain that Hiryu at least would have survived alongside Yamaguchi. The repercussions of a Japanese victory for the Pacific Theatre and the whole wider war, would not have been more stark. An American defeat at Midway would have meant uncontested Japanese takeovers of a string of Pacific islands, including the Alaskan Aleutian Islands and even potentially Hawaii. This would have given them a series of overlapping areas of air power from which to dominate the Western Pacific the US would have had to renege on the promise to primarily support the defeat of Hitler first and repositioned naval and air forces to the Pacific. It wasn't until mid-1943 that American industrial production really began to surge, so back in 1942 there really wouldn't have been any other option. It would all have had a catastrophic impact on Britain and the Soviet Union's ability to wage war in 1942 without US Lend-Lease aid. American destroyers leaving the Atlantic could have meant a defeat for the Allies in the Battle of the Atlantic, starving Britain. And the Soviet Union, reliant at this point on Lend-Lease aid, could also have lost Stalingrad without it. Australia, recalling its troops from North Africa to defend against a feared Japanese invasion now that the US wasn't able to help, could have meant a British defeat at El Alamein. That probably would have meant a German takeover of the Suez Canal and Middle East oil fields, and a reallocation 
of the brilliant Erwin Rommel and his Africa Corps to the Eastern Front, putting further pressure on the Russians. The US capture of Guadalcanal and New Guinea could not have happened until much later, meaning Japan would have had time to consolidate and grow stronger. The whole reconquest of the Asia-Pacific from the Japanese would have been much bloodier and much longer. In this alternate history, it's entirely possible that Australia and the Soviet Union would have sued for peace. Stalin is known to have considered it as late as 1943. And possibly even Britain too, strangled by the U-boat menace that Churchill described as the only thing that really ever scared him. As it was, American victory at Midway allowed the United States to continue prioritising the European theatre and provide early military assistance to Australia. It was this battle at Midway which crippled the Imperial Japanese Navy's ability to project force in this new era of aircraft carriers, and her industrial capacity would be so outclassed by the United States that it meant she would never recover. Midway then, more than any other naval battle of the Pacific, changed the course of World War II. I'd like to close this epic series on history's greatest naval battles by dedicating it to the memory of all those who have died at sea in the pursuit of their nation's or empire's machinations. From the terror of the up-close and personal boarding actions of ancient naval warfare and the appalling broadsides of 19th century ships of the line to the unimaginable horror of being trapped or burned alive on board a sinking submarine aircraft carrier or battleship. Salamis, Cape Ignomus, Lepanto, Trafalgar, Tsushima, Jutland, Midway. Every single one of these battles changed the world, and with no exaggeration, you are living the life you do because of them. Making this series has reminded me just how much we are all children of what has come before us and how the naval warfare of millennia has shaped the lives we lead today. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and for the final time in this series, thanks for listening.